right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Daily Power Parsha, Friday, April 8th, 2022. This is going to be our closeout session for the Torah portion of Mitzorah. Mitzorah began with the discussion about the Mitzorah, about the fellow afflicted with Tzorat and how he or she actually gets out of that state, how it heals and purification and the sacrifice of the offerings. We then spoke about other related laws of purity and impurity. And yesterday we spoke about the Zav. The Zav is the individual that has an unhealthy, the man, it's the man who has the unhealthy discharge um, and is rendered impure even after the discharge ends. Well, he's, he's impure and then even after it ends is, has to count seven days of no discharge. And only after those seven days can he go to the mikvah and then he, there's some offerings that are brought, etc. to regain cleanliness. We spoke about how this person, the Zav, the Zav guy, the Zav dude, can transmit the, um, the, imish, uh, the, sorry, the impurity to someone else. It's funny, I was speaking today with my friend, a doctor. I've mentioned it before, Dr. New York. And... Um, He's like, well, if it's like, uh, you know, a, a, an unhealthy venereal discharge, right? So it makes sense that the Torah would be concerned about what the guy sat on or what, where he lied down on because those things could theoretically transmit. Even, phys- even, even physically, you know, if you have, it's, you know, he's, whatever it is, he used the word gonorrhea, but things can transmit if you have, you know, if you're in proximity and that would make sense why this type of, of impurity is transmitted by sitting down on something or lying down on something as opposed to other forms of, of impurity which are only transmitted by touch. This one has other, um, other, other types of uh, forms that are associated with it. Be that as it may, that was yesterday. Today we're going to continue our conversation. So let's jump right in to the reading. Okay, give me a second, let me pull this out. Actually had this prepared. Reading number six, here we go. All right. By the way, you know, I usually close this ad and get slightly bugged that it's here, but I mean, not that bugged, but slightly, about the, uh, the Chabad.org banner ad, about the Haggadah. It is kind of cool, though. I actually ordered one um, from Amazon. It's like print on demand. It's just like they print it and send it to you. I got it last year. It's the same one. I think well, it's, yeah, it's a, uh, slightly updated, but yeah, it's really, it's a really cool one. And they have a free download. If you don't want to, if you want to just print it out at home, that's, I think that's a cool thing. You get, get, just get a free download and, uh, and that's that. All right. But we're not talking about the Haggadah today, at least not right now. Today we are talking about Mitzorah. Torah reading from Mitzorah, reading six. We got six and seven lined up. Let's jump in again. The laws of purity and impurity. All, I would say, new ideas or, you know, relatively newer or not so familiar ideas. So let's buckle up and jump in. Leviticus chapter 15, (coughs) verse number 16. All right. The Torah says the following. A man from whom there is a discharge of semen shall immerse all his flesh in water and he shall remain unclean until evening. The implication here is that we're not talking about an un, an, 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 any unhealthy discharge or anything like that. This is straight up the ritual impurity of seminal emission. So that immersion is about going to mikvah, immerse all his flesh and water, meaning immerse in the mikvah. Then he remains unclean until evening. So you need two things. 
as we've seen many times before, but just to clarify, you need number one, mikvah, and number two, time. Time has to pass. How much time? Nightfall. As soon as nightfall hits, if you got mikvah plus nightfall, next, next night, that, that night, then you're uh, ritually pure. And again, today, so what if someone's impure? Now what? It, it doesn't really mean, it's not going to hold you back from activities. In this case, in this case, back in the day, you couldn't go to the temple. You couldn't eat from the sacrificial meat or whatever it was. Like, you had to be in a state of ritual purity. It was relevant, immediately relevant then. Today, though, there is the idea of still being as pure as possible and thus also going to mikvah. Let's continue. And any garment or any leather object which has semen on it shall be immersed in water and shall remain unclean until evening. Now, let's continue. A woman with whom a man cohabits, whereby there was a discharge of semen. So, in this case, they, they I'm, I'm assuming, means the woman, they shall immerse in water and they shall remain unclean until evening. So here we have mikvah in the context of the seminal discharge. Okay, now that is, okay, so that's one topic and that kind of is closed out. So those three verses are a topic unto itself, beginning and end. So there's a, there's a level of impurity. Oh, by the way, by the way, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, and I think it's very important. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, that ever, or maybe it was um, Shmini, yeah, two weeks ago, that ritual impurity is triggered by a loss of life, but not death necessarily, by any, that's why a woman who gives birth is rendered impure. It's, it's about an absence or a displacement or a movement of life. Think about it. Think about it, right? A seminal discharge that contains the ability to, to create, right? That create that contains some sort of life potential, potentially, theoretically, right? So that renders a state of impurity for the guy and for whatever touches it, etc. So anyway, that's a little bit about that on, on the conceptual level. Now let's, um, I meant intellectually conceptual level, but I guess it also works. Um, Okay, now take a look at this Rashi. This Rashi is interesting. <coughs> Excuse me. Every time I go out, my allergies remind me that I'm allergic to things. Um, here we go. Um, in this case, where the woman who is with the guy and they are intimate together and there is a discharge of semen, so they shall immerse in water, it refers to really both. Both of these must immerse in water, Rashi says, it is the divine king's decree that the woman becomes defiled through cohabitation. And the reason is not that she came into contact with semen, for this constitutes contact with hidden parts of the body which does not defile. Rashi says something very interesting from the Talmud, of course, Rashi doesn't make up stuff, and that is that if it's by virtue of coming in contact with the semen, the woman would not actually become impure because it's contact with a hidden part of the body. It's an internal contact as opposed to external contact. It's a part of the body that can't be seen from the outside where the semen goes. So the point here is that by virtue of, of coming in contact with that, she wouldn't become defiled. But it is a xeras amelech. It's a divine decree that in the case of cohabitation, both parties become, it's a relatively minor level of impurity, just requires mikvah and evening, but there is a level of impurity that is triggered.
And again, today, what does it mean? Not really much. Other than some men have a custom every morning to go to the mikvah for a state of, you know, for this or for a state of enhanced purification, whatever it is. Um, <coughs> back in the day, though, in the temple, if the woman wanted to go to the base of Midrash, the holy temple, right, and she'd been intimate the night before, so then she would have to go to mikvah and then wait till evening, etc. So there, there was a protocol of, of impurity and purification. Okay, back inside. Well, let me just check in. Hold on, before we continue. Does that make sense? Yeah? Sort of? Yeah, I just happened to, a thought just came into my head. So, you know, it was the menstrual cycles. What about when a woman, you know, no longer in that phase of her life? Right. Yeah. So, no, that, so yeah, none, none, of this, none of that would apply. And we're about to get into that. But, yeah, none of that would apply um, post-menopausal. Correct. Right. Correct. I think there's a custom that some women have to go to mikvah like one last time, you know, that sort of thing. But yeah, after that, that doesn't, yeah, not, not applicable anymore. That need, that need for mikvah. Um, okay, but let's, yeah. But also, um, to apply the same thought process, if a man uh, with the semen... It's a loss of life. It indicates a loss of life. When a woman has her period, it indicates a loss of life because she loses her egg. Correct, and that's exactly the next piece. Exactly, that's ex- that's oh, that's okay. that's the next the next uh, section is the ritual impurity of menstruation. Yeah, exactly, and it's 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 um. So what I'm looking for, it's um, not balanced. It's um, symmetrical. I don't know what the right word is. Yeah, I, we talked about the guy. Now we're talking about the woman. All right, so let's jump in to the next piece of the conversation. All right, this is Leviticus 15, verse number 19. If a woman has a discharge, what type of discharge? Her flesh discharging blood. Okay, and that's referring to, of course, the menstruation. She shall remain in her state of menstrual separation for seven days, and whoever touches her shall become unclean until evening. And whatever she lies on during her menstrual separation shall become unclean, and whatever she sits on shall become unclean, similar to the Zav as well. Right? Like we learned yesterday, whatever he sits on or lies down on becomes, again, unclean is not, that should not, it's not a, that's not a, a trigger word or anything. Unclean is impure. It's a spiritual impurity. It's not anything, uh, anything other than that. And anyone who touches her bedding, again, just like we had yesterday with the Zav guy, same thing with her. Anyone who touches the bedding shall immerse his garments and immerse himself in water, and he shall remain unclean until evening. And anyone who touches any object upon which she will sit also shall immerse his garments and immerse himself in water, and he shall remain unclean until evening. And if he is on the bedding or on the object upon which she is sitting, when he touches it, he becomes unclean until evening. Okay, let's pause here for a moment. Again, these are identical laws as we had yesterday with the Zav. Remember the guy that had the, um, the, uh, the, the emission, right, yesterday? Same idea, the same laws about sitting on things or lying on things and people touching those things, same thing. The tumma, the impurity, can be transmitted more than one step away. It can go from her to the bedding to someone else who touches it, from her to a chair to someone else who sits on it, etc., it go it can can go one more generation or party further 
than what she directly touches. Now, let's do Rashi's. Before we jump in too deep into this, let's go. Um, okay, if a woman has a discharge, now the Torah doesn't tell us what type of discharge, or it says blood, but from where? So Rashi, Rashi says one might think that this means from any of her organs, which, I mean, hopefully she's not bleeding from any of her organs. Scripture therefore says, and she revealed the fountain of her blood. That's uh, a later verse, Leviticus 20.18. Scripture teaches us that the only blood that defiles is what comes from her fountain, the source, that fountain is a weird word, for her, from her womb, from inside, from the, the source of life, so to speak. <laughs> so that's obviously, we're talking about the menstrual blood. So um, her flesh is charging blood. So look what it says over here, very um, relevant law. A woman's discharge is not called a defiling discharge. It doesn't render impure unless it is red. In other words, um, it, it, we're talking about blood and not anything else. Um, Okay, she remained in her state of menstrual separation, even if she saw only the first sighting. I'm not, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know that I could define that more, more than what Rashi says, but even if it's initial or a little bit or whatever it is, it renders a state of impurity and requires a separation. Okay, um, looking for more Rashi here. <laughs> if someone, okay, if he is on the bedding, Rashi says, that means, uh, in other words, I, someone who lies or sits upon her bedding or upon her seat, even if he does not touch it, if he sits on a seat that is on the seat, aha, this person is nevertheless also including the law of uncleanness that stated in the previous verse, and he requires the immersion of his garments in a mikvah. So again, someone, so she sits on bedding or on a chair, and then he doesn't touch it, if he sits on a seat that is on the seat. Sits on a seat that's on the seat. So she sits on a seat, and then there's another seat on top of that, and he sits on that, he's rendered impure. Okay? It, it, it moves like that. Or an object, which includes riding gear, like we said with the Zav yesterday, again, it's, uh, it's, oh, parallel was the word I was looking for. It's the same parallel as we had yesterday for the man is for the woman, same idea. When he touches it, it becomes unclean. This refers exclusively to riding gear. Okay. Um, when he touches it, the riding gear becomes unclean, but he does not require immersion of garments. The garments don't become... Unclean for a touching, unclean riding gear does not defile people to defile, does not defile people to defile their garments. As we said yesterday, when you touch the riding gear, it only defile, it only defile, I don't even like those words. It renders the person in a state of virtual impurity, but not the garments. Okay, now let's untoggle Rashi and continue. Now we get into the next scenario, verse 24. If a man cohabits with her. Okay? The uncleanness of her... Men, again, uncleanness. I, it's, I think it's a more triggering word, at least for me, over here in this context. It's the same word was used for the Zav and for every, everything impure. I just don't happen to not like this translation. It's tummy. It's not unclean. It's tummy is ritually impure. Anyway, if a man cohabits with her, the, ritually, the ritual impurity of her menstruation shall be upon him, and he shall be unclean or impure for seven days. So in other words, if they are together, right, if there's an act of intimacy, then he is rendered in the exact same state as her, which means impure for seven days, and any bedding that he lies upon shall become unclean. Okay, so that is that. Let's now jump into Rashi on that verse. Okay. Um, oh, look at this one. Look at this one. 
one might think that he follows in her footsteps. What does that mean? Aif had relations with her on the fifth day of her menstruation. He too will be unclean only for three days. By the way, it doesn't mean fifth day of her menstruation. I think it means fifth day. We would have to look this up, but I'm pretty sure it's fifth day after not seeing any more blood. I'm pretty sure. Oh, wait, but then is she? I believe so. But anyway, or maybe not, or maybe not. But if she's already in day five, however we count that, then maybe also he doesn't have to start from day one for him because he can pick up where she's, where she's up to. No. Like her scripture therefore continues, and he shall be unclean for seven days. In other words, his clock starts now. Her clock may have started some days ago, but his seven days starts now. So what does this clause here, then the uncleanness of her menstruation shall be upon him come to teach us? It means that the same laws of her uncleanness apply insofar as, she, as just as she defiles people in earthenware vessels, so does he defile people in earthenware vessels? So the, the, the level of transmission is the same, but not the clock, not the timing, not the calendar. She might be a few days in on the calendar, but if he now is with her, his clock starts now from day one, and he's got to count seven days, and then the eighth day he can uh, continue the ritual. Okay, now let's continue. Actually, well, before we continue, let me just check in and make sure that everything is making sense. Thank you. There you go. That's for two. Okay, thank you very much. Um, now we're talking about, by the way, I have the Gunnik, speaking of the Gunnik edition, so I have it right here. So what's, what I like about this, amongst other things, is that it has like little section headers that kind of frame the conversation. So now we're going to be talking about the ritual impurity of abnormal menstruation. So, so far we were just talking about, in typical Mama, case, yes. Can I interrupt? Yeah, so the other one that we have in the shul, which I also purchased for myself, you know, the smaller one, it's like that lavender. The, the, the blue one or whatever? Yeah, it the has lifestyle. a different approach. It kind of is like talking to us. Do you know who wrote that? No. Same guy, Chaim Oh, this, really? Same guy that you're going to see tonight. Oh my gosh. And I have both of see. I'm not going to bring him the autograph. <laughs> he, even if you brought it, he won't sign it. Trust me. That's why I'm not. Trust yeah. me. I know. I ever told you guys? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. But I mean, there's such different approaches. I mean, that's why I read them both on Saturday morning. Yeah. You know. By the way, have I ever told you my story about Mitch Album? You guys know Mitch Album? Author of Tuesdays with Maury. Remember that guy? Yeah. Anyway, we were, I was with a, a group of friends. We were counselors in a day camp in... Huntington Beach, California. It's great. It might have been 1999 or 2000. Ah, we were innocent. Like pre-9-11. Remember that? Remember life pre-9-11? Just, ah, life was just innocent. Or so we thought. Anyway, so we were spending Shabbos in Laguna Beach. Why? Because the rabbi in Laguna Beach, parenthetically, the rabbi in Laguna Beach's son now lives in Atlanta in Sandy Springs. Anyway, one of his sons. So the rabbi in Laguna Beach, he and his wife, they were going to be out of town for Shabbos. And we were there, you know, a group of five guys for the summer as counselors nearby in Huntington Beach, Long Beach. So <coughs> we went to him for Shabbos. And we, we stayed in his house, so we ran the shul for Shabbos in his stead. Anyway, Shabbos afternoon comes. We finished, you know, we, we led the services and we had a kiddish and we fabrained a little bit. All right, everything was done. And now it's a long summer afternoon in Laguna Beach. So what are you going to do in Laguna Beach? So what does everyone do in Laguna Beach in the summer? You hit the beach. But we're not going to hit the beach. It's not a Shiva students hitting the beach. Come on. On Shabbos, hitting the beach? Nah, not happening. But what we decided to do is we decided to take a walk to look at the ocean at least. You know, to like get a view of the beautiful, it's gorgeous. Laguna Beach, 
You got hills and rocks and waves and crashes and it's waves crashing against the rocks. It's stunning. It's gorgeous. So we were walking and we were trying to find the road that kind of like is alongside the ocean, which we found. And there were stairs that went down to the beach, but we didn't go down those stairs. We're, you know, we're, not, going down, we're not going down the beach on Shabbos. It's not, it's not how we roll. So we're walking along this road, and the problem is there were these mansions, or I don't know, mansions, like houses that were on this street that was overlooking the ocean, and we couldn't get a look at the ocean because of the houses. But there was one house that was knocked down. I guess it was being, you know, somebody was building something. By the way, I spoke to the son of the Laguna Beach rabbi, because we schmooze from time to time now, because he's in Atlanta. He's like, by the way, that street, all developments, all hotels and condominiums and whatever it is. But back then it was like, just single family houses, uh, but one was knocked down and there was a chain link, fen- f- chain link <coughs> fence. And you know, the nature of chain link fence, when something is knocked down and there's a chain link fence, fence I can't pronounce that, but nonetheless, you could look through it because it's a fence. So we were, there we were, five guys, white shirts, black pants, yarmulkes on our head, Chabad yeshiva students, right? And we're just observing and a guy comes running by, he's got shorts on, no shirt, right, jogging. He's like, you know, he stops, he slows down as he approaches us. He's like, hey, you guys trying to get a look at the ocean? We're like, yeah. He's like, I live right next door. You want to come over to my house? We're like, then he's like, I'm Jewish. Like, I went to yeshiva as a kid. I grew up in New York. We're like, all right, we can trust him. All right, we're good. We introduce ourselves. He's like, yeah, my name is Mitch Album. Okay, I wrote a book. Oprah's making it into a film, Tuesdays with Maury. <laughs> to a man, we're like, I don't know what that is. Anyway, super nice guy. We schmoozed for hours. He knew all the rules of kosher. You know, he gave us w- bottled water and, you know, whatever it was. Anyway, wh- how in the world did we get to that story? Somebody tell me. Uh, the total how is the two? Millers, Sparrows, the two Miller. Oh, oh, listen to this. Listen to this. So he told us, thank you for the book. So he told us, I want to give you guys a copy of the book. I want to sign it. So we told him, uh, not on Shabbos, <laughs> not on Shabbos. Not only that, we're not even going to take a book because we can't carry from private domain to public domain on Shabbos without an Erev. There was no Erev. So we're like, I'm so, like, we're in his house and he's offering us a book. We're like, sorry, can't take your book. But he, I mean, he knew that. So he's like, all right, where are you staying? We gave him the edge to the rabbi's house. He's like, all right, after nightfall, I'll drop off a book. And he did. He dropped off a book, signed book. The sign was to the five guys in white shirts, to the five sweaty guys in white shirts and black pants. Something along those, I don't remember the exact inscription, but that was like a nod to the situation. Because there, there, there we were, you know, full-on gear, you know, Jew, Jew garb on a hot summer day in Laguna Beach. Um, <coughs> Anyway, that book went around to all five of us, you know, like the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants or something like that, that thing where everyone gets a turn to read it. To this day, I read it. I had my turn passed. No one knows what happened to that copy. At least no one claims to know. Some guy probably has that copy, but I don't, I'm kidding. I don't know. Either got misplaced or someone has it somewhere, but it'll be a cool book to find with that inscription. In case you ever find the used copy of Mitch Album's book, Tuesday of Mori, and you find that inscription, that was me. I was one of the five. Okay. Back to our story. Chaim Miller will not share, will not sign your book tonight. <laughs> That's my point. Stop bringing it. I, I mean, I also <laughs> thought of, you can't sign the Humish. I mean, that's kind of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, he might sign it. Well, he might sign it, God. I'm just saying. Oh, yeah. That was a joke. All right. How long do you think it took him to do each book? 
You can ask him tonight. You'll ask him tonight. I a few years. A few years each. Yeah, month. for sure. Yeah. But he's like he's yeah he's a, he's a good writer and he's knocks it out. All right, back inside. Let's do this. Now we're talking about the next category is the ritual impurity of abnormal menstruation. That means if it's longer than usual. This is verse twenty-five. Let's begin. And a and a woman whose flow of blood flows for many days outside of the time of her menstrual separation. And that means essentially that if the normal, you know, the normal flow is X number of days, this is going on much longer than normal. Or she has a discharge after her menstrual separation. So she had, you know, she has a regular period and then something that happens out of the ordinary, a discharge of blood that happens, you know, not in that typical time of the period. Then all the days she has her unclean discharge, she shall be unclean, just like the days of her menstrual separation. In other words, you, you, don't, you don't say, well, it's supposed to be X number of days. If it goes over than that, it's fine. You also don't say, well, I already had my period, so whatever this is doesn't count. If there's, if there's blood, then it renders impurity. And the same thing applies. Any bedding upon which she lies during all the time of her discharge, of this unusual discharge, or out of the ordinary, or unexpected, or whatever you want to call it, discharge, any bedding that she lies on will have the same uncleanness for her as the bedding of her menstruation. Same laws apply. And any object upon which she will sit shall become unclean, like her menstrual unclean, un- uncleanness. And anyone who touches them shall become unclean. He shall immerse his garments and immerse himself in water. And he shall remain unclean until evening. And if she becomes clean of her discharge, ah, oh, not if, it's when. I don't know, that's, that if is weird. Like if, we don't know. I mean, yes, it's going to end at some point. When she becomes clean of her discharge, when that ends, the blood flow ends, she shall count for herself seven days, and after this she may be cleansed. Similar to the Zav, again, the parallel, that was what I was looking for before, the parallel with the guy with the, with the discharge is after the discharge finishes, count seven days, same deal over here. Okay. Uh, we want to look up. Oh, wrong. Sorry, I hit the wrong button. Not that I don't like seeing you guys, but one second. I meant to hit Rashi. I hit stop share. It happens sometimes. Um, <laughs> I'm just looking at this for three consecutive days. All right. Yeah, I'm going to, what's it called again? I'm going to just say I think we got it more or less. I mean, Rashi gets into the nitty-gritty of all all the details, but I think we we more or less have it. I just also want to share this, that the name of the woman, I mean, not the name of her, but what what she's called in that state of unusual menstruation, i.e., like if it goes longer than normal or if it's outside of the typical period, etc., she is called a zava which is the feminine form of Zav. So just like yesterday, we were talking about the Zav, the guy with the discharge. So now we're talking about the woman with the discharge, which is the Zava. And again, the rules are, the laws are the same. The, the, the protocol is identical. All right, at this point, we are ready, I believe, to jump into reading number seven. Reading number seven, I think, is fairly short, and it will close out our conversation for this Torah portion. Here we go. Oh, we have Rashi toggled already. Look at that preloaded Rashi. Oh, what happens on the eighth day? 
Again, same, same thing. Zav and Zava, it's the same thing. Just different types of discharge, but it's the same thing. It's like a guy is going to discharge what a guy discharges and a woman what a woman discharges. It's the same thing. Same type of thing. Um, so she counts seven clean days, essentially, and now we have the eighth day. And on the eighth day... Wait, wait hold on one second. Before I, can, before I read this, I just want to just double-check the end of six. We did mention mikvah, correct? Yes. She shall count seven days, that's seven clean days, and after this she may be cleansed, and my understanding, maybe cleanse means there is a there's a mikvah that's involved plus what we detail for the for the eighth day. Here we go. And on the eighth day, she shall take for herself two turtle doves or two young doves and bring them to the Kohen to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and the Kohen shall make one into a sin offering. Again, the same thing as the guy. Make one into a sin offering and one into a burnt offering, and the Kohen shall effect atonement for her before the Lord from the uncleanness of her discharge. It's almost word for word, except for the feminine um, uh, inflection of the words. It's word for word the same as the protocol for the guy with the discharge. Seven clean days, mikvah, then you bring the two doves or turtle doves or two doves. One is a sin offering, one is a burnt offering, effects atonement, and she is good to go. Now, this is a general... Uh, this is now the general summation, sorry, general summary of the conversation. And you shall separate the children of Israel from their uncleanness. What does that mean, separate them from their uncleanness? Tell them the law, God is telling Moses, teach them the laws so that when they're in a state of uncleanness, of impurity, they will not enter the temple. You're with me on this? In other words, they have to know the laws of purity and impurity so that they don't end up being in a state of impurity and not knowing. So that's what God is telling Moses. You shall separate the children of Israel from their uncleanness. Educate them so that they will not die on account of their uncleanness if they defile my sanctuary, within, which, which is in their midst. The, the implication is if they do go to the temple in a state of impurity, it could be, they could be liable even for death. Now, not by a court, but by the hands of Hashem. So hands of God. So it's very important that one does not go to the temple in a state of impurity. I must stop, interject for one second. This is why to this day, and here's where it gets into a modern uh, application, many people, many Jews will not go to the Temple Mount. You know why? Because I don't mean the Western Wall. The Western Wall is the, is, is the, the Western Wall is the, the outer wall not, not of the temple, of the city, the old city of Jerusalem. So as long as you're outside the Western Wall, you're fine. But, you know, some people, go, you could go theoretically to the Temple Mount itself. Sorry, not the Temple Mount. The, yeah, Temple Mount and the place where the, where the temple was. And our tradition has it that that space retains its holiness, which means it's still a temple space. And today we're all in a state of impurity whether from this, that, or the other, or becoming in contact with a dead body and never having a red heifer, which we've all come in contact with death. And you're going to say, I never touched a corpse. It doesn't matter. If you've ever been to a hospital, you've probably been in a building under the same roof as someone who was deceased. And the way that works is, if you're under the same roof as someone who's not alive, that renders one in that state of impurity and you need a red heifer. So that's why we don't, uh, when I say we, many, many Jews will not go too far into the space of the temple out of um, respect for this very law that we're reading right here. 
And again, I'm just going to repeat the verse. You shall separate the children of Israel from their uncleanness so that they will not die on account of their uncleanness if they defile my sanctuary, which is in their midst. I know it's like a, it's a pretty, conv- at least the way it's translated here. It's a bit convoluted, but what it's saying is God says to Moses and to Aaron, you guys are the teachers. You guys are the leaders. Make sure everyone knows what the protocol is. Make sure everyone knows that when you're in a state of impurity, you don't go to the temple. You don't go to that area. You got to stay away until you do the process of purification. And I'm saying today we don't have, we have a mikvah, but we don't have the red heifer stuff, which means that really can't go to that place. I mean, I'm not sure if there's any halachic dispensation for that today, but I, my understanding is no, that there isn't. Let's continue. And the Torah again is summarizing. And we're done with the details. We're just now summarizing. This is the law for one who has a discharge. And from one, oh, here we go. So now we're summarizing all the cases. You ready? This is the law for one who has a discharge. That's the Zav. And from one who sent semen issues, that was the first conversation today, through which he becomes unclean. And for a woman who has her menstrual flow. And for one who has a discharge, whether male or female, and a man who cohabits with an unclean, means an impure woman. All these cases, they are impure, and there's a way to get out of that impurity through time and mikvah and maybe a few turtle doves or two doves, uh, you know, throw that in, no additional charge. All right, I mean, yeah. Rashi, and you shall separate. And you shall separate, no. Let's continue the next Rashi. Um, the punishment kares, the death of the perpetrator and his offspring is attached to an unclean person who enters the sanctuary, thus defiling it. Kares, wow, that's pretty heavy. It's a spiritual excision. We see from here that kares is also referred to as misa, death, meaning death penalty from heaven. Yeah, it's a heavenly thing. God's, in other words, God's saying, tell the, warn and, and make sure the people are, make sure everybody knows what's at stake because it's important that they get this right. This is the law of when I was a discharge, a person who sees one, who sees one discharge. Yeah, I mean, and what is the law governing him? The Torah continues, the one who semen issues. He's like one who experienced a seminal emission. He becomes unclean until evening. And for a woman, I'm not sure what Rashi is adding here. And for one who has a discharge, this expression refers to someone who has seen two discharges and someone who has seen three discharges whose loss is specified above in the whole passage, beginning with the verse 3. Okay. All right. I'm not sure exactly what the Rashi's are adding, but I feel like, I f- I feel like we have navigated an otherwise, um, I'm not going to say obscure, it's not the right word, an otherwise untrodden, mm, an otherwise unfamiliar section of Torah, something that typically is not well known or well discussed. I mean, it's in Torah like any other verse, but for whatever reason... You know, mainly because it's not as apl- applicable today because we don't have a temple. But nonetheless, it's important to study these things and I feel like we got a good handle. So the moral of the story is that when there's a, you know, I guess we'll go, we'll go back to the life, the life context. When, there is a, when there's some sort of displacement of life on any level, whether it's a birth, whether it's a death, whether it's a... Um, seminal emission, whether it's a menstrual flow, etc., that renders 
a person in a state of impurity for any, anywhere from one to seven days, depending on exact, their exact scenario. And either it's only them, or it could be someone who comes in contact with them, and either there's a mikvah only, or either there's garments that get also defiled, or whether it's also some sacri- sacrifice that have to be brought, depending on exactly what went down, will determine all of those factors. But the point is that we are to be conscious and aware of life and its various nuances and inflections. And with that focus, I think we can all we can commit to living a meaningful life and a committed life and a life of, of, of elevation indeed. All right, that concludes this week. Now, I have to mention something else. And that is, um, what, do I want to, what, what do I want to mention? I want to mention that this week is called Shabbat Hagadol which is translated as the Great Shabbat. The Shabbat before Passover is always called Shabbat HaGadol, the Great Shabbat. Why is it great? There's a few different reasons given. One, not so tongue-in-cheek, is that the rabbi gives a very long sermon. So it's a, it's a great sermon, or a, a great as not in the quality, but in the quantity. It's like great, it's elongated sermon. So that's one meaning of, of the Shabbat HaGadol. But another meaning is that a great miracle happened. Now, what's the miracle? It happened before the tenth and final plague, before the Exodus. The Egyptians were warned that all the firstborn were going to die in the tenth plague. And the firstborn began, the Egyptian firstborn began to panic. And what did they do? They began petitioning Pharaoh to let the Jewish people, to get rid of the Jewish people, to, sorry, to, to, to send them out free. And Pharaoh and the officer, the officials refused. And according to our tradition, a civil war broke out between the firstborn and their supporters and Pharaoh and his supporters. And there was literally Egyptian on Egyptian violence. There was an advocacy and a fighting of, from the Egyptians to let the Jewish people go. And this is canonized in one of the refrains of, of, our, of, of our liturgy. Egypt was struck by its own firstborn. The, their own firstborn fought against the Egyptian slavery. Which means that the idea of redemption wasn't just a Jewish thing. It was also advocated by the firstborn Egyptians. Now I understand their life was at stake. They, they were... They were they were um, scared for their lives for, for good reason. But the point is that the advocacy came not from our camp, but within their own camp. And this is a sign of redemption. Sign of redemption is when the message comes not only from obvious sources, but when it comes from the unexpected source, right? When, when, the, when the world itself says, ah, look at this, look what's happening. The world is, you know, this, that, or the other. When it's coming from, you know, when it's not coming from the rabbi or from the Torah, from Judaism, when it's coming from the world itself, that's a big message. So, you know, we live in a world in which there's a lot of, a lot of stuff that's not great, certainly. You know, we, we, we pray for safety and peace and, 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 and only, you know, good things. But there are also many signs, many positive signs of good, of, of good things coming. 
So let's remember this great miracle that happened. Oh, and that's what Shabbat Hagadol, this, this part of what this Shabbat is commemorating is that miracle of Egyptian on Egyptian uh, fighting. In other words, it's not about the fighting, but about Egyptians advocating for Jews. So please, God, we should experience this. Not just other people advocating for us, for the Jewish people, but it's more that, more that the, the space itself that was causing the problem should be the source of the healing of the problem. And that any space that's causing problems should itself recognize. I mean, we see this today. You, I mean, let's just speak very simply. I feel like I'm speaking in coded language, which is something that I do so as not to be too specific. But look, we've seen protests. Yeah, we've seen protests from, the, from people who protest their government and saying, we, I, we, we oppose this war. We oppose this war. We've seen it in our country. We've seen it in Russia now, where people are opposing opposing the, uh, this, the, the um, certain moves of it. And, and the point is not to get political. The point is to, is to that's why I hesitate sometimes to bring these examples. But I'm not weighing, I don't want to weigh in on any specific political thing or any specific war. Like, uh, you know, in our history, it's complicated histories. And, you know, but the point is that redemption is born of an awareness that doesn't only come top down, but also comes bottom up. We've always talked about this theme. It's not just top-down. It's not just outside-in. It comes from within. Even Egypt, on some level, realized the necessity to let the Jewish people go. That's what redemption is. Redemption is when the earth itself is saturated with the divine awareness, saturated with the good values of peace and love and harmony, etc., that the world itself says, this is unacceptable. This is unacceptable. We as a world will not tolerate this. We as a world find this, this just inconceivable. That's a sign of redemption. When the advocacy comes from within, when the values are not being superimposed from God, Torah, you know, Judaism, etc., but when it's coming from the world, when the Egyptians themselves say, we need to free the Jewish people. When the world itself says the bloodshed needs to stop, we need a situation of peace, we know we're getting closer to redemption. So may it be just like in those times, so may it be in our days, May this be a prerequisite or a, not a prerequisite, a preamble or a precursor for redemption, for Mashiach, for Gula. And may we experience, as I said Wednesday night, this Passover. May already we be in Jerusalem with Mashiach, with uh, world peace and all the blessings that we seek for ourselves and the whole world. Chaim. Good Shabbos, everyone. It's, uh, it's wonderful to study together another week, another Torah portion. Thank you all for joining, and um, we're back to normal uh, next week, pretty much. Well, yeah, we'll uh, no no in person Monday, but otherwise DBP pretty much throughout, except for Friday. So, looking forward to seeing you then. All right, Shabbos joy, good Shabbos Donna, good Shabbos Sarah. Take care, everybody. Good Shabbos, everyone. Shabbos. Take care. Bye.